everyone, and welcome back to the State of the Ark podcast. My name is Mike. My name is Kason. Um, sorry for the dip in production quality for this week. We are recording separately over webcams. Um, I got really sick while I, I've been traveling for work for the last two weeks, basically. I had only really one day when I was here out of the last two weeks, and it was when we recorded the last podcast that went up <laughs> on a Thursday. And then I haven't been, I didn't get back till like Saturday night, just uh, when this goes live, the last Saturday night. So um, things have been really hectic for me. It will not be like this normally. This is a very unusual sort of schedule that I've had. Um, so in any case, um, we're going to do the best we can with the setup that we've got uh, for this final episode. We've already gotten through the whole game story. Um, we're basically just going to kind of go over some things that we alluded to in the early episodes. Kaysen had talked about uh, the Mandala and Besaid Island um, and kind of revisiting the opening scene again. Um, so we're going to go over those things. But then um, we are going to go through some comments that we got. We got some really great comments on the last episode. Just kind of read through those and uh, maybe work through some of the questions that we had and just um, interact with uh, the audience a little bit. So that's our plan um, for this episode. So this will be the final episode of Final Fantasy X. Um, we will move on to Metal Gear Solid after this. So look forward to that. Okay, <clears throat> I'm actually going to kind of, for the next while, just pass it over to you and just let you uh, go at it. Um, so uh, take it away and let me know okay. when you're done. <laughs> I'll let you know when I'm done. <laughs> uh, so this uh, this is good stuff. Uh, it's so funny. There's so much that we had noticed ahead of time. And the way that we structure the podcast, we're still making sure, we're still figuring out exactly how to treat spoilers, basically. And for the most part, we've decided just don't do it. No spoilers, right? Um, but because of that, there's a ton of early game stuff that we just had to wait until until you find out that Yuna's going to die for the Besed Mandala, in fact. It, it, that when when um, people ask me about what exactly is given away by that mandala, it is the fact that Yuna's going to die. Not only that, but um, many, many other things as well. Uh, but you wouldn't necessarily know that right away. Um, and I'll get to that. But first, we're going to talk about the very, very beginning of this game. Mm -hmm. um, because the the first, I don't know, 20, 25 minutes up until Sin kind of vacuums everything up um, is very, it, it's, it basically encapsulates the entire game kind of all in one, right? It, you have or Oren's leadership. Um, you know, we can start at the very beginning. Here's a fascinating thing about uh, the Blitzball players. They wear these goggles that look very Albed-like, I think you could say. Um and it's funny because at first I thought, because you see that woman as uh, Titus is scoring his goals and stuff. And Titus like kicks that dude out of the, the water bubble psh, into the stands and everyone's cheering and stuff. And Titus is not wearing goggles, right? Um, but then as you see the other players, especially the players on the other team, they are wearing goggles and they aren't just any goggles. I mean, they're straight up. They look like the Albed, you know, get up. It looks like the Albed, um, you know, uniform. Um 
And but as I looked a little bit closer, there are some people wearing colors similar to Tita's colors uh, that are also wearing goggles. So people on Tita's team also have goggles. Um, I guess it would just be kind of like a uniform type thing. Um, but you can basically you can see um, you can see kind of like a, a battle playing out within the game, right? And there's two sides, right? And both sides kind of want the same thing. One side has Titus and he's doing his thing. The other side has a bunch of goggles people, <laughs> but they both want the same thing, but they're fighting against each other, right? So that's the first thing to notice, right? Um, Sin comes in and just ruins everything and kills everybody and destroys everything, you know, um, in Xanarkin and starts sucking everything up. Well, you have Auron here, right? So all of a sudden Auron shows up out of nowhere. He's the leader. He's going to kind of drag us all along up until we reach Sin, you know? And he's going to convince us to go in into Sin, right? And so the whole idea, you could almost see this game as taking place inside of Sin because of the beginning, right? And I'm not saying that's what happened. That's just, you can kind of view it that way because as soon as Titus enters into Sin, it's like all bets are off as to what happens after that, right? Uh, everything could just be an illusion from within sin. It doesn't even matter. But the point is, is that Titus goes into sin to save his father and to defeat sin. But in order to do that, he has to enter into him. That's what happens at the end of this, uh, of the intro sequence of this game. Um, you also have the the scene, the sequence of the building that, you know, kind of falls in towards them and it's got Jack's face on it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, as Titus is running, away from the blitz ball and following Oren and going, he's inadvertently, he doesn't even know it. The image of his father is coming towards him, right? In a way that he doesn't like, he doesn't want it. He doesn't expect it. And it's basically just a freak accident. And all of a sudden it's like, Oh, my dad's like attacking me, you know? And so that scene just right there, that moment uh, tells you a lot about the game. Um, And uh, I, I have a few other notes here. So we're also followed by ghostly apparitions early on in the game. Um, you have uh, the the uh, T or Titus. Yeah, he pilgrimages. You could call it a pilgrimage. You don't have to. It's just his job. He goes to all the different blitzball arenas to play his sport. Right. That's what he does. So his job is kind of making pilgrimages to all the different locations that have blitzball teams, um, and they have to go into sin to defeat him and then the game is just a distraction the game of blitzball is a distraction the way that the religion of spira is just a distraction from what's actually going on right so you cut you you you've got this different kind of competing elements but that, that are very similar and so the the reason i want to talk about this part first is because it's not just at the beginning it's not just that, oh, it's kind of cool that they kind of encapsulated the whole game in the in the very beginning, and then you kind of go through your whole journey throughout the rest of the game now trying to get into sin to go save your father, right? And which is what you do at the very beginning, right? It's 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 because of other things like the Besed Mandala, right? And other things that happen throughout the whole game that you realize, and we've mentioned this so many times, Blitzball is the game. Like Final Fantasy X is Blitzball. Everything that you're doing is like a friendly competition. Even the summoners all are kind of competing against each other as if they're playing a game. Um, you know, Blitzball is the thing that survives and the whole religion and all of their salutes and their sociality, their socialization with each other is all based around Blitzball. And the whole the whole world of spirit kind of is like a big Blitzball game, you know? And, and then the church are kind of like the referees and you, you they set the rules and you've got to kind of play within the rules. And... Um, 
anyways, uh, that's kind of what it's like. And it's no coincidence that when you go out into the very end of the game, you know, you're on a Blitzball arena when you fight Sin. You're or when you fight Jack, I guess, as Sin. You're in the Blitzball arena from the beginning of the game. It's as if you're just playing Blitzball. And that's also true when you go in to fight um, Unaleska. And then you come out of that big arena, right? Uh, now, am I right on this, Mike? Was that big arena a Blitzball arena? You're in, in Xanarkin in the dome area, in Zanarkand. right? Xanarkin. When you come out and then Sin is there watching you? I'm actually not positive, but I wouldn't be surprised if it was. Okay. Now, I may be wrong on this. I, I actually do remember looking this up because I, yeah. I remember when I was playing it, going in, and I was like, I wonder if this is the same building from the beginning of the game with the two tower or the two statues outside. The two statues. Exactly. And it's not the same building structure, so okay. I don't know... I would I would guess no, it's not a blitzball yeah. arena where Unaleska is inside, but it is a dome structure that's very similar. It's a Xanarkin yeah. building. So what were they doing there? If there's a domed arena, yeah, they weren't playing blitzball. It could be that it's a different blitzball arena from the one we saw for, one, for a different team in the beginning. now, or it could just not be for blitzball, which is fine because we end up when we fight Jekt, it's in a blitzball arena. So yeah. Yeah, at the very least, that one's correct. But other at other points along the game. Um, here's a fun here's a fun fact. There are eight aeons. There are eight summons in the game, right? Yes. There are also eight blitzball teams. Yes. There's the six from Spira and then the two that we play at the very beginning of the game. So if you want to total them all up along with the Xanarkand Abes and everybody, it totals eight, right? Oh, okay. Yeah. That's not an accident. Sure. Right? There's I, I don't think that's an accident. <laughs> um and that factors into the Bissed Mandala as well. Okay. Um, one of the other things I wanted to talk about, um, aside from just the intro of the game and how well it was done, and especially, this is why that intro meant so much to me after playing 10, is because now I'm going back through it and I'm just seeing how exactly like the whole game this is, how well it encapsulates the whole game. Um, and it's just such a, such a good intro. Um, but I want to talk a little bit about just the general religious concept of Gnosticism, right? Because, um... That seems to be what's going on here. You've got Sin who acts as kind of he's like um he's like a, he's like a god, but not not like a real god, like mm. not one of the divine gods. Kind of like a sort of accidentally man-made type god, something yeah, like that. Right. Not really. He's a force of nature, but um he's he's not an actual immortal god. Yeah. He is a lesser form. Uh, he's an amalgamation. If you understand within Gnosticism, you have all of the tiers of gods, and I think there's like 30 of them, and it goes all the way down to um, Sophia is kind of like the last of the gods. And and um, Sophia has this like longing to venture outside of the Pleroma, of where the gods exist, which mm. is more or less the far plane. Um, and accidentally, this overstage yeah. of yeah of the Pleroma <clears throat> spills out and creates the, all the matter of the world, right? And Sophia is like aware of this, but she's not like I don't think she cares that much. And this is the funny thing about Gnosticism: you can you can posit within Gnosticism a god that just kind of doesn't really care about you. <laughs> <laughs> And, and so through Sophia, the Demiurge is created. And the Demiurge, the great thing about the Demiurge is that it thinks it's the god. Yeah. It thinks it's the, the, 
the top alpha of of the whole world, right? Because all it knows is this material world that isn't even really a part of the divine realm. It's a separate thing. Uh, but the demiurge is like sick. This is my place. I run this. I run this uh, show now, right? And so the demiurge would be what Gnostics considered the god of the Old Testament, right? So the god who like is demanding the worship and who floods the earth and just yeah. kills people and right. is, it seems to be a little bit overbearing. Um, that's a pretty um, what would you call it? It's a pretty cynical reading of the Old Testament, but it's not one that's entirely unwarranted, right? And so the Gnostic Christians developed this idea that that the earth was a place that needed to be escaped from. You have to get out of the earth, right? The earth is bad and it's a dualistic frame, right? The earth it will always be here and the whole universe and all the material aspects of life uh, need to be escaped outside of, right? Mm -hmm. And you can only do that if you're really, 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 really smart. And that's why the word gnosis means knowledge, right? It means like how much you know. And so there's like a secret, take, there's like a secret gnosis that you yes. need to att attain. Yeah. And if I were to ask you <clears throat> in this game, did uh, you, Yevon, attain some secret gnosis that led to, you know, his ability to transcend mortality? That's a, that's, that's a good question. At um, least for a while. <laughs> yeah. Like, because, you know, I, I remember, I can't remember which episode it was. I was talking about whether you, Yevon, is evil or not, right? And yes, yeah, a lot, yeah. a lot of the responses to what I was saying there in the comments were things like you, Yevon, um, through whatever process in creating sin, right? And it, you, even you mm -hmm. kind of mentioned this too in the episode, sort of like became something other than human, and it was more like a, like a protocol or like a program that just like runs. And so that's why the kid was saying it's neither good nor evil kind of a thing, right? Yeah. Uh, inadvertently kind of created this cycle. I don't know if it was exactly what he wanted to do rather than just, like, get vengeance on Bavel. But... Right. Yeah, anyway. <clears throat> but but Yuyevon did want vengeance, but also did clearly want to preserve... Yeah. Xanarkand, you Xanarkand, know. yeah. Uh, but at the same time, you know, he kind of became something of a demiurge right yeah right and um was able to exact his justice but also you know show mercy <laughs> occasionally <clears throat> and he kind of became you know the god and you know within gnosticism the idea that that people can become gods is is a a, a theme in gnosticism mm -hmm. right and so you yevon being just a normal dude who just attained the gnosis to learn how to be a god and to live forever and did it, you know? And it's like, holy crap, that's that's what Gnosticism's talking about, you know? Now, this game, of course, portrays it in a different way, and there's magic and all that stuff. Gnosticism isn't necessarily like that. Uh, but you're you're saying... Aeons, sorry, I just wanted to cut in real quick. Uh, become gods through a process of theosis, right? Um. Yes, but... Well, because there's, there's different types of theosis. Yes. Um, now, yes, <laughs> the answer to that question is yes, but um, not the theosis that uh, Catholic and Orthodox and some Christians think of, which is where you are aligned with God and you become one with God in that sense. And theosis to God, like you join the body of God. Yes. It's not that one. It's not okay. that theosis. <laughs> it's you become a separate God, separate from God and the gods in a kind of a separate way. Okay. Right? And, and there are other religions that do teach that kind of theosis as well. So, yes. Um, but yeah, it's a very specific, it's a very individual 
kind of thing. It's not a collective idea. Okay. And so then, uh, yeah, the, the aeons basically emanate from the Pleroma, um, which is the, the far plane. It's, I mean, it's basically the far plane. It's just this weird, gooey, like prima materia saturated like field out there in in who knows where and that's just like the place where all of the consciousness and all of the the mental material and all of the patterns and everything emanates from this this strange you know place that is essentially the far plane with all those fireflies right um okay uh, so that's not that's Gnosticism. Uh, I don't don't think that you know anything about Gnosticism from what I just said. I just <laughs> a few things about that Final Fantasy X relates to Gnosticism. Um, there's a lot more to it than that, and I'm sure people in the comments who are Gnostics will be able to chime in and um, um, tell you what Gnosticism well, is really about. There's no unified sort of uh, doctrine in Gnosticism either. So good point. Good point. There are several different schools, and which is yeah. kind of the whole point of it. Like. Gnostics yeah. were all about finding that secret gnosis within yourself, not about looking yes. outward for it. Which so. is why it's very individualistic. Yeah. It's very personal in yeah. that sense. Yeah, yeah. Right. But there are writings, and you know, people did kind of look to like Valen, Valen, Valentinian, Valen, Valentinus, Valentinus, yeah, yeah, to kind of tell them what the gnosis is, you know. And he wrote some books, and a bunch of others did as well. Um, but yeah, they're all different. So that's a good point. Okay. Then Mandala. we have Yuna. Oh, Yuna. <clears throat> Yuna is a Christ figure, right? And this is great because I didn't want to bring this up early on because as soon as you say that someone's a Christ figure, it's like, oh, they're going to die. <laughs> like, okay. Well, I didn't want to tell anyone that, right? But um, she is. But what's so funny is that at the very end, she isn't. Yeah. And they really subverted this within the... Uh, within the story here so you have yuna she walks on water okay like clearly this is a Christ <laughs> reference, all right um so yuna she's on a pilgrimage to pray at all the temples and save the world through her death from sin right uh yuna reforms yevon and calls out the religious leaders for being corrupt that's big yeah uh, jesus did the same thing um yuna is the healer of the group right so she has healing powers she can Make let the blind see and the lame to walk and all of those things. She walks on water. She gives passage to the dead. So she's something of a of a psychopomp. You've ever heard the word psychopomp? I it's sure like haven't. A, yeah, it's the what would you call it? The the person who runs the ferry over the river Styx into Hades. Mm. That is that is the psychopomp. They're kind of a guide into and out of hell, basically, and they can help spirits kind of make their way into it or bring spirits out of it. They're also something of a protector as well. They fill a few, a couple of roles, uh, but a psychopomp is more or less what Yuna is because she helps the dead to kind of find their passage into the next world one way or the other. Right. Mm. Um, then the eye color difference indicates mixed heritage. Of course, the idea that, that Jesus was the son of God, but also the son of human people. Um, her flower, this is the craziest part. Her flower has a cross on it. Um, I don't think very many people would have noticed this, especially if you play the HD version. Um, but it's mm. not, it's not just like a plus sign. Like Titus has a cross. That's like a plus sign all over his body, all freaking everywhere. Uh, but that's less, um, indicative of, of the, the Christian cross. The Christian cross has an elongated bottom, right? Yeah. Right. Well, Yuna's got that flower on her belt. And if you play the HD version, you're not going to see what I'm talking about at all. Um, but if you if you play the PS2 version, 
um, which is the one that I first did play, although I played it on an emulator with up <laughs> graphics. So it was basically the HD version. Um, you'll see that there's two holes at the bottom. So there's like, it's a six petaled flower and there's a flower pointing up, a flower pointing to the sides and then two holes on the side and then a flower pointing down. Right. And those two holes are where she's got this like string kind of thing that goes through. Oh, sure. uh, but anyways, it basically means that there's only four petals to this flower and it's arranged in a in a crucifix with the center position being elevated. Right. So anyways, she's got that kind of symbolism on her body. Um, they changed it for the remaster. I don't know why. Maybe for this reason. Maybe that was unintentional. <laughs> um, but either way, she she's going through. She is Jesus. And then she decides at the very end, yeah, I'm not going to die. Never. <laughs> that's where it's like, whoa. And it kind of overturns the whole idea. You know, a lot of people will do this in the third act. You know, they'll tell a story that's very similar to a mythology or a story, a fairy tale, something that people are familiar with, and then kind of subvert it at the end, usually not to great effect. Right. Mm. Uh, but sometimes it's like, oh, I didn't see that coming. That's cool. And that's certainly true here. You don't really see this coming. You're on your first playthrough. Um where you kill Unaleska. I, at least I didn't see that that's what we were going to do. Um, but she, Una decides I'm not, and you you know that she's not really going to die, but you don't see it going the way that it goes here. Uh, Una decides uh, consciously that she, I'm, I am not going to die for, for Spira. I'm going to find a new, I'm going to find a different way. And at that point she ceases to, to be identified with Christ, right? At that point, she's a new, a whole separate new thing, you know? And that's cool. I think that's fine within the story. What's ironic though, is that then Titus basically picks up that mantle right where she left it off. And then he goes forward and he becomes the sacrifice uh, for Spira that Yuna refused to be. Not that I'm blaming Yuna for refusing it. I think she did the right thing, uh, but someone, someone had to die. And it was either going to be her or Titus, and she didn't know it. But uh, when she chose not to die, um, is when Titus was consigned to 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 certain death, right? So, well, death meaning I don't know actually. <laughs> what does death mean? <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, actually, we will touch on that a little bit. At least what it means will for we? Titus um, with a comment that somebody made. So we'll kind of return to that one. Okay, cool, cool. All right, so there we go. We have all of this. I think the last thing that I have to say for all of you guys is the Besed Mandala. So Yeah, there I were a bunch of people asking you to go over this for the last There's episode. a bunch of people who have been asking me to go over this <laughs> the entire podcast, and that's fine. I want to. Um, I kind of wanted to make a separate video on that. I don't know that I am going to be able to pull that off. So we're going to do it here and I'm going to do my best. Understand this mandala is very complicated and I hope I can hit on everything. Um, I may still do a separate video just on the symbolism of Final Fantasy X at some point in the future where I go into this in a little bit more of a planned kind of perfectly scripted, you know, video editing and all that. Yeah. But at the very least here for all of you guys, people, everyone, I can show you um, exactly what this means. So, Mike, I'm going to share my screen okay. right now. Okay. And here we are. Okay. So, do you got it? Got it. So, this is the Besed Mandala, more or less. Uh, I got this from NoClip. And the unfortunate thing about NoClip is that um, it um, is only the PS2 version. It's not the HD remaster. And when I first was exposed to this mandala, it was through the remaster, right? So 
I'm going to give you guys the you guys the idea here, uh, but you're going to have to do maybe a little bit of your homework on your own through the HD one where you can see it a lot better. Um, but I just didn't have the head-on angle that I was able to get here uh, with no clip. That I, I just wasn't able to get that with the HD version. So let's look at this mandala for a minute because there's some uh, some fun stuff I've been itching to get at this. So first of all, I'm going to give you a simple explanation of this and then i'm going to give you the more complex version right so the simple version is that this is blitzball this is blitzball but remember especially with what i said earlier blitzball is spira <laughs> they're the same thing right blitzball the way that it's played the rules the the environment like just everything about it is Spira, and you, you know that too, because when Titus first enters Sin, Sin is a giant blitzball court. I don't know what you call it, ball bubble. Sphere. It's a blitzball sphere. That's what that's what Sin is. Titus goes into the the water sphere of of Sin to play the blitzball game of his life, and during this game, he is constantly referencing how similar this is to blitzball, like. When you got the ball, you got a score. That's the one we were kind of talking about last right. time. Yeah. But even all throughout, when he talks to Yuna, there's all sorts of times. There, there, there are many moments where where Titus is um, making a Blitzball reference in relation to, to just spirit, to being a guardian, to summoning, or to whatever it is, right? So he's clearly making this connection, right? Now, uh, I, I, I can't show it right now, right here. You guys, you're, you're going to have to go back to Luca within um, the game. And you're going to look at all of the places where you can see all of these designs. You're going to see the circle with the parenthetics around it going all around the stadium in Luca. You're going to see these markers on all of the bleachers where the people sit. So this represents the bleachers. This represents the walls that are going all around the entire arena. This is fun stuff. This right here, this symbol... This is uh, the maester. This is when uh, Micah shows up. He sits on a throne that looks exactly like this. And it is placed um, correctly within the stadium as well. So he's sitting on this throne. It's jutting out kind of over out of the, um, you know, the arena into this part where all the people are sitting, right? Then you have this gap, this wonderful little gap here. This is just showing the stone texture that's behind everything, right? So there's a separation between what's happening in these circles and then what's happening in these inner circles right here. So the separation is that this right here, this symbol, I've been, I have been calling it the symbol of the pyreflies throughout this entire game. And the reason I reference it here, you see it here as well as something like it in here. Now, I do have to mention that this part right here, and you can see my cursor, right, Mike? Yeah. Okay, mm -hmm. this part here looks very different in the HD remaster. These thick parts that are right here, um, the, you know, it looks like there's a bunch of string parts going out from it, and then there's a bunch of thick, like, ovals here. Those thick ovals are a lot thinner in the HD remaster, so it was a lot clearer that this was uh, meant to be representative of water. Now, um, pyreflies being important here because pyreflies are electricity and this is something we'd also touched on in the podcast uh the the whole game of of blitzball is generated through an electric shock to the water that basically like you know forces it into this form and then the electricity yeah. which is the energy of the pyreflies is what keeps the blitzball arena the blitzball um sphere in that shape 
right? And so you have the energy of the pyreflies, but then just kind of the general water that's also going all around it. Now, one really important thing when you're reading symbols um, is to understand kind of the most common symbols that you'll see, the most common patterns that you'll see. And I've gotten this all throughout. I've read um, uh, Sacred Geometry from Rudolf Steiner, um, which is actually a pretty intense book. It was kind of hard for me to read. Uh, but then there's also like an introduction to um, to symbolism or how, how does it go? A beginner's guide to patterns or to symbols. I can't remember what it's called anyways. Maybe I'll put a link to it in the description. Um, but there's a few books that kind of really touch on exactly what to look for when you're seeing shapes like this. And one of the basic, basic patterns you'll see is the square and the circle, right? So the square means earth and the circle means um heaven generally speaking this is going to come a lot more into play <clears throat> when i kind of step outside of blitzball to analyze um all of spira right but at the moment you can at least say that in relation to the blitzball game the square is the court this is where all the things happen right so you have all your outside influences you have the gods the angels the demons you have the cheers you have the booze you have the patterns you have the music you have the chants you have the noise that's all coming from outside of of the earth so to speak it's all coming from the stands right and these are the onlookers as you're playing the game right now this is where the court happens it's earth right well it's spira in this game uh but um, the land is always a square and the, the, the round, the circle is always, is always the heaven or the abstract realm. You could say that because a circle doesn't have a point, right? Mm. There's an imaginary point somewhere in the center here-ish, uh, but it's imaginary. I think even Plato um, talked about that a little bit. There's an implied point, but you, you can't identify a point specifically on the circle itself. It's just implied in the middle somewhere. So... This is the court of Blitzball. This is where they play inside of the water, right? And you score your goals, and there's marks like this. Like, look at this particular one. Um, if you look at the bottom, uh, at the ground, underneath the Blitzball arena in Luca, um, you'll start to see some of these exact symbols um, on the ground there, like right there. Um, so this is where you start, and you go whichever way you're going to go, right? And this is the game of Blitzball. So what this mandala is saying in part, is hey blitzball like i mentioned there are eight teams how many circles are there one two three four five six seven eight there are eight um protrusions here to this shape right so you can conclude that this is referring to the eight teams and then they're kind of all competing against each other until it kind of comes down to this point here right this also is reminiscent of a flower not just any flower the hibiscus flower which has five leaves I get that. This is only four. But these four leaves look like the hibiscus leaves. And so you, you see this is kind of like a blooming flower. This is the very center, and it kind of goes out up into the edges of this point here. So anybody who wants to define me on <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> whether this is a blitzball game or not, I've got that one covered pretty dang well, right? Now, that doesn't give anything away about the game, however. And I've skipped some stuff. I, I really want to go into more depth about this soon. Um, but for the most part, you can find all these symbols all around uh, Luca. So that's great. Now, I want to talk about how this is relevant to Spira. Because you'll see the exact same patterns I just talked about, except understand that this is Spira, right? Now, a fascinating thing about this square is that its corners are cut off. Mm. Now, why are the corners cut off? 
Well, they're going into this. They're going into this shape here and this uh, this pattern here, which is reminiscent of, of water and specifically of the fireflies, right? Well, it's fascinating because these are fiends, right? This is the this is the this is the world that is like technically tied to Earth because there's a gap here, right? So this would be the actual far plane, it would be somewhere like over here, right? Um, but this is the elements of the far plane that are still tied to Earth. So these are all of the fiends that are trying to get to Earth. And the middle here is the summoner. Remember when uh, Yuna is doing her uh, sending, she is standing on top of a flower in the water and is sending all of the spirits out to the Pleroma, right? Mm. So the energy of this mandala is pushing outward through these corners here, right? This is the contact. This is what you would call, um, this is where the worlds meet, right? And the worlds meet for the sending to be sent out, but it's also indicative of the fact that things from out can get in, right? So just understand there's a there's a duality there. There's two things happening. So the fiends can come into the world, right? Or they stay in the world. It doesn't matter. So when you die, you're here, you're just hanging around waiting to be sent, right? And you'll find your way back into the world at some point, as soon as you get one of these entry points, right? Which is also the exit points uh, to be sent out here, because you can see the same symbol of the pyreflies is found out here, right? Out at the very edge. So this is where the pyreflies go. This is the actual far plane. It's all the way out here. Okay. So this is beautiful as a flower design because as i mentioned yuna being um symbolized by the flower and um specifically her standing on top of the flower when she does her sendings you can imagine that yuna is standing right here in the middle but look at this there's a what shape is this <laughs> there's a big there's x. a big x on there yeah there's a big <clears throat> x now when i first saw this mandala i was like who the fetch decided to just put an x in the middle like what is this who what where was this decision made right like who decided oh there's this beautiful mandala let me like spray paint like look at it it looks like just a psh, psh, yeah like an somebody. x marks the spot kind of thing yeah like on top of it you know <clears throat> and at first glance it looks like the x is done on top of it right yeah now i'm going to show some other things that are going to happen a little bit later but initially you can say that X means death. That's what it means. Even in Christianity, the cross means death. That is Christ dying. That is that what that means, right? And and the X is um, when people die in cartoons, you draw an X for their eyes. And everyone knows what that means, right? If they're sleeping, you'll just draw like a line. Everyone knows that's not death. As soon as you put an X on it, oh, they're dead, right? That's mm-hmm. South Park with Kenny or whatever. Right? <laughs> that's, that's what X means. So X marks the spot, but when an X is on a person... That means that that person is is marked for death. You could just say that, something like that. Now, you can talk about the cross insignia being on a person. As long as they're resembling some type of Christ figure, it is kind of saying that they're going to die also, right? If if Even if it's just referencing the Christ story. That's not always 100% true, but as you read kind of this, I believe that's what this is saying. So this X right here is saying that Yuna will die, right? That's what this says, right? So you have the summoner standing on the middle of a flower, right, with the eight ions, because I mentioned, now we're done with Blitzball now. Get rid of the Blitzball out of your head. The eight teams of Blitzball are now the eight ions. So once a summoner has all eight ions, 
they now actually I don't think they need all eight, but in the game there are eight. So this one. Yeah, right. Because there's some eight. of them are optional, but they're supposed exactly. they're supposed to go to all of the temples. Yes. So theoretically, somebody mm. could summon the final Aeon with like five or six. Right? Is that correct? I think. Because you don't have to go yeah. and get all the ions, do you? Yeah. You don't have to. You don't have to get all of them. Yeah. No. Well, th by that same token, we don't do the final sending or the final Aeon. Either, yeah, we don't. But, um, yeah, true. We could have. Right. Unaleska was like, you can do it. Yeah. So, okay. So these are the eight ions surrounding us in a flower of transcendence. So this is where I have to bring up what the number eight means, right? And this is true across the board. This isn't just Western European stuff. This is true in China. This is true everywhere. Um, and particularly in China and Japan because of the lotus flower. The lotus flower has eight leaves going all around it, right? Now you can have a nine leaf lotus that's saying something else, but generally speaking, the white lotus, and this is uh, more or less a white flower, you can see it here too as well, um, has eight kind of points going out. And the word eight or the number eight means mediation and transformation. That's what that number means, right? And so um, through all eight of the ions, the summoner is, is transformed into a dead summoner <laughs> and does the thing that sends all of the power away in the different directions, right? And kind of does does the work, right? But it all emanates out from the summoner. Now, there's a really interesting thing when you look really close here. This X is actually not on top of everything. It looks like it is, but it's not. You get another pattern over the X, the X which yeah. symbolizes that there's a there's the possibility of overcoming death of overcoming the necessity for death, which is what Yuna does, right? And this one's a four, a four-pointed um, flower. And four, of course, means earth because four corners, um, just like a square, it just means like the, the world, right? Uh, but either way, there's something, when you analyze things, you're going by layers, right? And the X, although from a distance, the X looks like it's on top of everything. When you look at it closer, the X is actually there's something on top of the X. There's something that transcends even the death that necessitates the summoners with all eight of the ions in their mediation between heaven and earth, right? That's what a summoner does. They mediate between heaven and earth. Now, I don't want to get too like in the weeds with all of this because I'm just focusing on this part right now. But <laughs> this part, this is the throne that... Micah sits on when he watches Blitzball, right? It looks exactly like this. Yeah. There's another thing. This is also where um, Machen, when you see Machen on the, um, at the Calmlands, Machen is standing there telling us the story of the Calmlands. Well, th this is, it's really, um, it's really uh, apparent in this particular scene because when the camera goes behind Machen, you see that this is what he's wearing. His hat goes up in this point and it's got this weird kind of thing. And then his cape has this type of symbol going all the way down. And he's dressed kind of like a priest of Yevon, right? He's mm. just kind of got the priestly attire. Well, that is this exact um, symbol, but there's, well, okay, then I'll tell you the next part where you see this. There's three parts where you see this symbol. Uh, this one, you'll notice, is a little different, right? Mm -hmm. So this one is like the thrones or machin's back. But then you have four of these going up, right? right. And these ones don't protrude the same exact distance. Well, at least not in the HD version. Um, yeah, gosh, the HD version is quite a bit different, actually. Um, but there's a big difference between... 
in uh, between this one and this one, right? And this one, I believe, is talking about the four masters of Yevon, right? So these are the four. And uh, one of the good ways that I can have a confirmation on this is when you first see Seymour, before he knows that we're trying to trick him and, and kill him, when we first go to Guado Salam, you will see the entrance to Seymour's, um, like his room with all the food and the room he has everyone wait in. It is flanked on each side by three of these exact things, kind of like drapes hanging down. But they look exactly like this. And there's three of them. Then there's the door. And then one, two, three. There's three again. And this is correct. Go, go back to Guadalajara and uh, you'll be able to see um, within Seymour's kind of waiting quarters that this symbolism is there too. And he is one of the maesters, right? Mm. So that to me is a good confirmation that this symbolizes the maesters. There's four of them, just like there are four maesters. Um, by the end of this game, all four of them are dead. Early on in the game, two of the four were still dead. Um, there's a fun part about this being the far plane and that the maesters are coming from the far plane, overextending their bounds into the abstract patterns that govern the world of Spira oh. from the far plane. Yeah. It's basically telling you that the, the maesters, maesters are, are dead. dead. Yeah. It's telling you that in this mandala. The maesters are dead. They're coming from the far plane. They're exerting their influence well beyond where they're supposed to be. And they're getting into, you know, the this would be kind of the patterns and just the, the laws of nature and the heavens, right, so to speak. But they're, they're moving towards Earth from where they're not supposed to be, right? Now, these ones would essentially be like empty thrones or just the, the general idea of the priests. Or, or even through Machen, the stories, right? Just the history and the the myths, right? That the myths are coming from the far plane also and, and, and interfering in the natural kind of function of the patterns and laws that govern the world of Spira. So you got all these outside forces coming inward. And so you can see the energy coming outward, inward, only at a certain a few points. Now I say point, well, there's... I'll just say that there... Well... I don't know if I should say this, but there is there is phallic imagery here as well, which is part of the the idea of something along the lines of a patriarchy. Yeah, you put it that way. Sure. That that is sticking its nose <laughs> where, it <laughs> where it doesn't belong and seeding seeding the patterns and the um, the surrounding um, laws that govern Spira with their own outside influence. Okay. This is important to note because within the earth, the pattern is actually going outward. So from the center going out, you see all of the energy is moving out. That's how all of this is flowing. It's going out through this eight leaf flower, through this transformation, this mediation that's pushing things outward into this realm. But then you have a counter force, which is the church, which is Yevon, which is forcing itself inward against what the will of what's happening on Spira, right? Against mm. what the summoners are doing. They're actually at odds. And the oppression is going on, yeah. They may not even know it, but they're they're not on the same team. <laughs> they're fighting against each other. But this summoner will, will shoot out the spirits out to this direction in this way, and then these guys are trying to exert their influence, you know, from the outside coming in. Oh my gosh. Um, did I miss anything? I mean, that's more or less what this all means that's um, pretty crazy if anybody like do you kind of like do you think i'm onto something here or am i talking crazy no no i i don't i don't uh 
I don't think you are at all. I think a lot of that makes a lot of sense. And mm. it's pretty... I mean, if it's all intentional, which I, I suppose is impossible to... Dude, this has to be. Because <clears throat> all the other temples don't have nearly, not even close to as complex of a mandala structure. As this Besaid would. Yeah. And none of them are saying anything that difficult to read. Most of them yeah. is just, oh, the... The, the willy wily waves of the flames, you know, and this, the fire god, the fire aeon is in Ifrit, is in that temple, you know, and yeah. the other ones, oh, the crystals of ice that are, oh, that's the ice one, you know, but this one is like the whole freaking game. Yeah. Like it's, it's, it's Blitzball and Spira and the whole game just summarized beautifully. Like yeah. I've never seen it done this well. Yeah. And I, I can read symbols and I've never seen it done this well. And it's, it's, you know, for Final Fantasy X. Like, I really, I almost am in disbelief at how perfectly <laughs> this comes together and just, like, fits into the theme of the game. And mm. how, if you have an eye to see and if you already know some things about the world ahead of time, sure, yeah. that you would look at this mandal and be like, oh, man, like, you already know what's going to happen. Yeah, in the whole game. It, it tells you everything. Yeah, yeah, I oh, think man. so. Okay, now, anybody who has some ideas or anybody who sees something here that I didn't see, um, mm. let me know. Um I had a really, I had a few things where I'm like, but what does this mean? You know, why, how many, cause there's like 12 circles going out. Well, what does that mean? There's 16 of these going around. Well, what does that mean? You know, like uh, some of these numbers I look at and I'm thinking it could mean one thing or another. I don't know, but uh, oh, one important thing to note though, I do have to say this, Mike, Uh, hold your thought though. Don't forget that there is a separation here. There is a separation between this world and, and then the outer world. Right. And this right here is that separation. These worlds aren't connected necessarily, right? So you send something out to the far plane and it doesn't, like it's it's gone, you know? Like these Mm -hmm. spirits are stuck here. They can't go here except they're, unless they're sent and then possibly received. That could be what this is, but I don't don't think so. Um, But the the fact that they're separate, just like in Blitzball, how everyone playing Blitz is separate from everyone watching it, right? There's a separation here that is just perfectly illustrated by just having a gap. They could have, they could have done all sorts of things to illustrate that there's a separation, but instead they just made a gap here. There's just nothing for this part. And then you have the wide world of the heavens going around it. And that's, that's just beautiful. So the Pleroma that we, the far plane that we see interacting with the earth here, isn't the real far plane. That's separate. They're separated. Okay. Say your thing. Um, well, what I was going to say is actually, it's likely pretty dumb. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I, um, I doubt it. I don't, uh, I don't, I struggle with symbols. Um, really? It's actually made me kind of interested in reading some of the books that you mentioned because, Ah, like, I should look them up then. Like, for the novel that I'm writing, I have to describe some insignias. Actually, bring that back up again, if you can. Oh, okay. Um, uh, I have to describe like some uh, insignias and things like that, and, and I'm always at a loss for like how do I, you know, describe something, a symbol that like has a meaning for, you know, this sort of like culture of this, you know, nation or whatever, oh, and I yeah. I always struggle in like okay how do I do that I I so anyway that's sort of a separate thing, but that's why I think what I'm gonna say is probably not that like profound but if you go all the way to the center again 
Okay. Um, you're talking about like Eunice standing there, right? And like the yes, X marks the spot. Death. It almost looks like she's there's. The hibiscus. She's the stem. Remember that. Yeah, that right. Symbolism is very intentional. She's the stem of the flower. That's this point right here. The the center there almost looks like a sort of microcosm of the mandala itself. So there's like the square in the circle thing. Yes, I did kind of see that. Yeah, you're right. You're right. And I wondered if maybe that being on top of the summoner yeah. is some representation of the cycle of Spira where the summoner, uh, like, th like uh, the world inside of the world kind of thing, it just keeps going. Yes, like a fractal. <clears throat> yes, yeah. actually. So we're the camera to keep zoom. I think I see what you're saying. It goes we're in, to zoom in on and this. it would zoom in it again. And it would be the world again and again and again and I again. I actually again. really like that because I didn't quite know what to make of this because it's kind of a square and it's kind of a circle around it. And it's like, yeah, there's another world within another heaven, but it's kind of sectioned off. Into yeah, it's it's not, that's, that's the part that doesn't fit yeah, what I was thinking I is the, either, the big cross thing. That I think your idea there actually has a decent chance of being right. Because I think that this mandala was clearly, if we're going to talk about the lore of the game, right? They yeah. made this mandala not thinking that Yuna was going to break their whole system. <laughs> yeah. Right? right. Now, I don't know if this is a game design thing or if this is actually like a, like a, what would you call it? Like a didactic thing within, within Spira that they designed it to mean all of these things. They probably designed it just to mean Blitzball is probably what it was really supposed to be saying. And definitely that symbolism is there as I talked about. But, um, the idea that, oh, this is what summoners do. And then there's a new one in the middle and that, the typical summoner would just renew the cycle again. Um, I think then your interpretation holds perfectly. I actually really like it. Mm. But at the same time, this meaning that Yuna transcends it with a new world is kind of that, more yeah, that the could way be that too. I was going with it. Yeah, I could see that too. All right. <clears throat> Anything okay, people, else? Now you can, uh, you can fight me. <laughs> You can find me about this. Tell me I'm smoking weed, just like <laughs> <laughs> looking at symbols too much, reading too much into it. But I, to my credit, I did not see this level of symbolism in any other mandala. So it's not like yeah. I'm just seeing things everywhere, you know? It was only this one. So, yeah, yeah. Just, just remember that. Okay. Good stuff. It'll, it'll be stuff. interesting to see... Um... What people think about that. All right, now. Hey, maybe there's some people who read symbols better than I do, who even have some more ideas. So I'd love to. I'd love to hear it. Yeah. Um, for the next half hour, I want to go over some stuff from uh, that people left in comments. Uh, I'm going to start on Patreon. There's a few people asking some questions on Patreon, and then I'll go over to the video itself. <clears throat> so um, this one comes from uh, Hassan Alazemi. Good day to you all. I want to thank you for your efforts and would like to ask some simple questions about FF10 before the last episode. Number one, if Dream Xanarkin's people are just memories, how can they reproduce or have babies like Titus or the sports announcer in the beginning of the game who's mentioning the birth of his son? Um, well, I did have, I had a brief idea. I don't, I don't know how high a chance this has of being correct, but the idea that maybe there's like a Groundhog's Day kind of thing coming here. Where they replay like, like a similar time over and over the same again. Day over because I don't know how far you can get. Like it's been a thousand years and they're still doing the same thing. 
the same you'd, you'd have to it, it, you would think it'd have to be something like that because something like the, that. the life of the faith before they became faith would have only been so long some of them are little children like the boy right so they only yeah. have let's say 10 years of experience to even draw from anyways so they would have to be reliving exactly. some period of time recycled yeah yeah and it and it couldn't <clears throat> be the day right because titus has all these memories from maybe it's maybe up. it's 10 years i mean 10 years seems sure reasonable given that's the time period it takes for sin to come well it's actually shorter than that but now i'm full of radical ideas that people say oh good idea but that's wrong like fine i don't i'm not a, i won't be offended if that's just totally out of base or off touch off base off out of base touch. Out of there touch. we go yeah. um but um, it would be it would be crazy if the faith were dreaming up new people every day mm -hmm. and replacing them for thousands of years for a thousand years and just dreaming up new people and not ever reusing the same old people from before. I feel like there's a recycle regeneration thing happening and that Titus has been around for a very long time. Yeah. Yeah. So the idea here is. I mean, the the way that uh, Hassan puts this, if they're just memories, I wouldn't say just. That's that's kind of like yes. the way that people. That that's kind of the way that people have viewed this plot twist throughout, like the discourse on FF10. Oh, he's just a dream after all. Like that sucks. Like oh, I don't like that. Yeah, it's not that. Like, it, it, it they aren't just memories or just a dream. They are made manifest in the world in the same way that aeons are. So in the same way that Valifor is a real physical thing that comes into Spira that fights and takes damage and is a physical presence in the world of Spira, the people of Dream Xanarkand are also real and physical in the world of Spira. They're just separated from spirit in such a way that the people of spirit can't go to dreams anarchant but it is a physical place it is being summoned so he is a real physical person it's just that the way that that person was created through a process using power uh, pyreflies came from the minds of the faith so they sort of uh, create in they use their memory as a foundation or as a source to create in their minds what Xanarkin looked like and all the people that lived there and their daily activities which I suppose would include people giving birth and new people coming into the city and people dying and all of that so that it would be like a normal society they're thinking of all of this they're they're dreaming it and thinking it like actively which is why they're so exhausted because they've been doing it for a thousand years sitting there like right. constantly sort of like thinking of the place and, and then because you mentioned that there was a person that titus was likely yes shuyan shuyan yeah yeah shuyan and it's almost like they had Shu probably their first when they first imagined xanarkand shuyan was just shuyan but after a thousand years it's like every time they need to bring him back, they keep reusing different elements or they make him slightly different each time. Yeah. And before you know it, he's like Titus now. It's like a totally different evolution, you know? Yeah. I, I would, based on the conversation we had about memory in our Vagrant Story podcast, if you've not seen our Vagrant Story podcast, I suggest watching it. 
Um, yeah. Memory is not like a file system where you store what happened in a little in a little slot in your brain and then you just go recall it you know when yeah, you, when you yeah. need that file again that's not the way that memory actually works memory uh, they're discovering is actually a creative process you use the creative parts of your brain in recalling memories so each time actually that you recall your memories there are parts of it that change each time yes yeah, without it, even knowing it. And so, like, the way that a person would recall a memory um, right after the event happened would be really accurate to what happened. But, like, two yeah. years later, there will be so many elements when they're recalling that memory that have changed that it's almost, like, 50% different now. Yeah. Um, and that continues, like, throughout your life. Of course, there are some things that imprint a little more strongly and you'll remember them more accurately and other things that you'll forget more but the, on average, you know, a person sort of changes about 50% of the details of memory after like two years. So I would assume that after a thousand years of active memory recall, that the faith are not getting every detail of the original Xander can write at That's all. That's more or less what I mean how, with, how <laughs> Titus, with how Titus is... is uh, Transformed into Titus from yeah Shuyin, from Shuyin yeah right it's like well they just slowly remember the a different thing each time and before yeah. long it's like did he have blonde hair or black hair I can't remember yeah so anyways it's not just that they're memories they are real in the sense that an aeon is real when it's summoned um, yeah. it's just that they are being created in the minds of the faith and then made real through a summoning process that Yu Yevin is doing. So Yu Yevin, Yu Yevin is using those faiths to summon Dreams Anarchan and make it real. Um, and uh, does that make sense? So like every aspect of the society of Xanarkand is being sort of created yeah. through the remembering process that the faith are doing all the time like in that mountain. it makes sense, but it's hard to... It's hard to grasp... But like, right. but it makes sense that that's likely the process through which it was done and how things kind of changed, yeah, over time and change, yeah. Although they don't change much, right? Yeah. Okay. Uh, second question from Hassan, or you got something? Just the the names of the books. <laughs> A beginner's guide to constructing the universe. Mm. Oh, okay. Yeah. That was um, the other book you were thinking of. Yeah, yeah, that was the other one that I was thinking of. And then there's another one called um, like a dictionary, a dictionary of symbols. And then, um, of course, the other one that I talked about, sacred geometry by yeah. Rudolf Steiner. Okay. Anyways. Okay. Second question. Second question is how can Titus see his mother in the far plane if she wasn't a real person? Which also brings another question. How can people from dreams and can die or become the final aeon? Because... Yeah. They are made real. <laughs> they are made real through the summoning process. They are physically present. They are real. Um, so any, so it doesn't have to be a separate human or anything. It just needs to be, if anything was made real at any point, it can then be recalled. Yes. Through the um, Guado Salam or something like that. Yes. So in, in terms of like how can Jekt become the final Aeon, right? He's not right. just this you know, uh, ethereal thing. He's a physical presence, right? And I actually forgot to mention this. When you fight Jekt, 
in inside of Sin at the end of the game, one of the final bosses. Um, that is the final Aeon form of Jekt that you are fighting. So like oh, where he's like the big beard. Yes, dude, like, yes, that's what he transformed uh, that's into. What, that's what he looks like as a final Aeon. Correct. That. Yes. And then Sin just or uh, Yevon just kind of shows up and merges with the merges with the final Aeon. Yeah. So okay. Jekt the man when he became the final Aeon transformed into that monstrous sort of version of himself that you fight. That's the final Aeon of Jekt. Jekt as a final Aeon, right? Um, now, as far as how can Tita see his mother in the far plane, I tend to, my headcanon on this is that the, the Al better closer to being right on what's happening in the far plane than the people who follow Yevon. They aren't actually seeing these people. I think the Pyreflies are showing them images of people that they knew. So the Pyreflies are sort of going into their memories and sort of showing them the image of a person they're thinking of. So I think Titus is seeing his mother because he's thinking of his mother at the time the Pyreflies are making his mother um, manifest. Um, so that would be my explanation for why he can see her despite the fact that she's a dream and she... But she was a real person too, in in because oh. she was summoned. So she was also a yes. physical, real person in dreams. Energy. She had an embodiment, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah. And it's almost maybe there's like a memory to the pyreflies, where if something has been manifest, if the pattern of a thing has been manifest before, then the pyreflies can re-manifest it again in accordance with whatever pattern you're projecting with your mind, right? Right. Um, and they're like, oh, we we can do that. We've done that one before. Um. Whether they're dead or not, there's still a weird kind of issue there where they can't do it if they're not dead. Um, but there is one um, thing that kind of, I think, bolsters what you're saying here. And that was in the audio drama <laughs> that we don't have oh. to talk about. <laughs> but I did listen to it. Um, it's it's interesting. Um, it I, I don't know a ton of what's going on there. I'd assume I'd had to have played uh, 10 2 as well to get that. But I did listen to the drama. Uh, at least at one point in the drama, it is mentioned that somebody decided to remember sin in the far plane, well, in a place like Guadalajara, or was able to kind of use the pyreflies to reproject sin based on their own memory, right? Yeah. And then now sin's back, and now everyone has to fight sin. Oh, sure, yeah. Yeah. Um, That's crazy. <laughs> yeah, but but it's based on oh somebody went to the place where the fireflies were to the moon flow or something and just thought of sin and now sin's back he's gonna kill everyone. <laughs> like, dang it, man! That's a really that's a big problem if that's how this works. Yeah. But um, you got to close off the freaking far plane to people. Well, exactly. Well, because theoretically, with what you're saying, sin was a real manifest thing despite being made of fireflies. Um, that could easily just be re-manifest if somebody just goes and remembers it when they're in a place with fireflies. Sure. Um, and so because that's in the audio drama, I would say that that is likely what you're saying is likely how it works. Even yeah. though the audio drama is not something I recommend anybody listen to. It was weird. Um, the final part of this, how do they die? Again, the same way that Aeons die in battle, right? They're defeated and they sort of go back to the mind of the faith that is dreaming them, but then they can be summoned again. As long as the faith is alive, that is thinking or remembering or creating the Aeon in its mind, the summoner can bring it out again. So as long as the faith are alive and dreaming, 
Tidus can could technically be killed, but then kind of come back through Yuyevin's summoning. Um, I would think, but the the real death for Titus, like true death, happens when the faith stop dreaming. Uh, when they're no longer actively creating yeah. him in their minds. Now there was a point on this that I did not know. This comes from Flex Offender on YouTube that I want to read because this was fascinating and it changes my perception of the ending a little bit. Um, I, I think we had both agreed in our interpretation that, that Titus is being kind of made into a real boy again, the Pinocchio yeah, yeah. thing. He's, he's a real dude. In the ending. Yeah. But I actually like this way better now. So Flex Offender says, if you go back to the chambers of the faith and talk to them, you get to see scenes of them talking to the party in their human form. If you beat Dark Shiva, which is an optional super boss, and go back and talk to her in her chamber, she says to Titus, please do not get angry. We will dream of new oceans for you to swim. And now what happens to Titus after the ending credits? He wakes up in a new ocean, right? So what it seems to me is happening there is that this is a sort of afterlife for Titus where the faith somehow in their death are continuing to dream of him in their afterlife and creating new oceans for him to swim, like an afterlife for him, if that makes sense. Um, now, I'm going to read the rest of Flex Offender's uh, comment here. This game has had me thinking that it explains not only how its own magic and summoning system works, but maybe even what the crystals are and how the many worlds of Final Fantasy are related. To me, the far plane pyreflies seem very similar to the life stream of FF7, where the spirits of the dead flow through, energize, and exist elsewhere in the world of the living. Not so much that the far plane is a space that the pyreflies are connected to, but parallel, a parallel abstract realm that they are able to manifest or display images of. If pyreflies are the power source used to create sin, as well as the foundation of summoning aeons through dreams, it makes sense to me that all the magic in the world works by using this power source, which is essentially the spirits of the dead, which make up the base energy of the universe. Yep. Um, now, here's where I get crazy with it. It seems to me that this is how things work in Final Fantasy VII, Nine, and Ten, very explicitly. The life stream in Seven, the spirits of the dead being harvested in Nine by the Terrans, and the far plane or sin in FF10. In 9 specifically, you're even told that this world is created and maintained by the crystal that is the main motif of Final Fantasy. This made me start thinking, what if Spira, Dreams, Anarchand, and every other world in Final Fantasy is essentially working the same way? They're being brought into being by the dreams of the faith and then kept empowered by the re-energized... or by the re-energized... Hold on. Sorry, I'm reading this wrong. And then kept empowered and re-energized by the same spiral of death that can only be escaped once we, the player, from uh, a different dream, interrupt the cycle and cause the dream to end by beating the game. And put So this is sort of like a meta element he's throwing into it. Yeah. Um, and to the eternity that the characters would have been trapped in the dream had no one ever interfered. Really interesting um, comment there. Should, but I, That's fascinating. I like that. The part there specifically, please do not get angry. We will dream of new oceans for you to swim. That to me feels like that what we're seeing Titus wake up in at the end of the game is like an afterlife that the faith have created for him in their afterlife. Now, that's not official Square Enix canon given Final Fantasy X-2, but we've already talked about how, or I at least have talked about how sequels tend to... Um, 
undermine some of the themes of the original game in, a, a, in an attempt to just continue things. Um, well, hold on, though. Hold on, because that gets even more meta. <laughs> because think about that. You got this world that they thought that they won, and then you're forcing them to go back through the same thing again yeah. just to make money. <laughs> Square Enix is... Yevon. <laughs> they no. Think or, about this. Well, they're, they're also they're exerting their influence. They're also their, Shinra. You, you've heard people talking about like the NFTs, like uh, Square Enix embracing NFTs and stuff like that. Are they? I didn't know. And how they made a game in Final Fantasy VII about an evil corporation who um, harvests sort of this, uh, you know, like world destroying or, or, or it, um, <laughs> yeah. like eco like unfriendly sort of like policy that's destroying the world and nfts being anyways so yes right it's funny they've created a thing where they are their own their own bad guys right they're their they own are. enemies they've become you live long enough to see yourself become the enemy <laughs> that's, right? it. that's it exactly um, okay let me fly through this a little bit um okay. i'm actually going to move on from Hassan real quick. Sorry I didn't get to the rest of that there. Um, I want to go to Robert Malt real quick. Um, actually, no. I'm going to skip that one too. Sorry, Robert. I'll, I'll talk to you about that again like by responding to your comment in Patreon. Um, here's one from Jimmy Dudley. I'm not sure if this is where messages are sent for the podcast or not, but here's mine. Do you make anything of the connection that is clearly shown in Final Fantasy VII Remake with Shinra from Final Fantasy X? Or do you think that's oh. just some sort of joke for the devs? I don't remember the reference I you're talking say. about in FF7 Remake, but I do know that they named a character Shinra in Final Fantasy X-2 for the purpose of connecting the world of Final Fantasy X to the world of Final Fantasy VII to make them the same world. Um, I think this is a horrible retcon that was clearly not the intention of the original Final Fantasy X, but rather the philosophy of, of Yuichi Wada, who became the president shortly after Final Fantasy X's release, <laughs> or maybe even shortly before, I don't know, um, and uh, who wanted to make sequels to everything to make more money. Um, so they That's found like, a way um, to do it. Well, there, there, that was a fad at the time, actually. The Disney... CEO, um, Eisner. Yeah. I think his last mm -hmm. name was Eisner. Eisner. In the mid '90s, yeah. he took over Disney, and he was like, "We're doing sequels, man. We're doing sequels, 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 sequels for everything." All those direct-to-video sequels. Tanked, it kind of tanked Disney for a while. Like Disney had issues around that time, and then they had to get rid of him uh, for Bob Iger, who was able to actually kind of help them make new stuff again. You know, mm -hmm. but that's funny. Square Enix basically had the exact same thing happen. Yeah. Not a fan of it. I do not believe that was the original intention of the game to be connected to Final Fantasy VII in any way. Sakaguchi never wanted direct sequels for Final Fantasy games to be made. Do you made. think that was just them just saying like, haha, screw you, Sakaguchi? I don't think they're saying that. I, I think no. that they, they genuinely just thought that it was a better business model to make sequels to things. And so... Because you know, <clears throat> these games are his chi or Sakaguchi's children. Yeah, in a way. Right? Mm -hmm. And the unholy union. It's like incest. <laughs> Well, you're you're mixing seven and ten together in in a way that produces this like this like monster, you know? It's like you don't don't do that. Yeah, 
Leave, this, leave Sakaguchi's children alone. Now, now this is not to say that Final Fantasy X-2 is a horrible game or something. Um, I do have problems philosophically with the way it's done, but it's actually no, a pretty I'm fun game. It's actually a pretty glad, fun game. Yeah, I, I, yeah, that's what you said last time. I, I'm glad yeah. you say this because the way I talk, I haven't even played Ten Two. I just don't like sequels. Period. <laughs> so I'm not dissing Ten Two anybody. I'm yeah. dissing all sequels everywhere. Yeah. Except for like five of the ones that I happen to like. Right? Unless almost all the time, it's not a good idea. Unless you're writing your story with the intention of there being a continuation from the start, right? And you have yes. like a, a three act sort of trilogy planned out. Like like Avatar: The Last Airbender. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Which uh, did it well because they weren't, you know, clearly, and they didn't stretch it forever. That's the thing I hate because yeah. there's rumors about Final Fantasy X three floating around, and yeah. even still, you know, after all this time, what what doesn't tend to work for me is when you write a story with a beginning, middle, and end, and that was supposed to end there, and there was no intention to do a sequel. But oh my goodness, yeah. it was successful. Yeah. We should capitalize on the success of this thing and continue yeah. it because the people want the characters more. That's where it becomes messy from a narrative sort of planning stage. And you've got to find a way to keep it going when it wasn't intended to and it wraps up really nicely. And I feel like 10 does that. So anyway, I don't know if that exactly answers the question for, for Jimmy, but I, it's best I can do. Okay, now let's go back over here to... And we're not going to be able to get through every comment, but I want to try my best to get to the best ones. Okay, here's a good one. Carafine, regarding the, the extent of control of the faith, my interpretation is that Jekt, Arin, and the faith are all separate entities with their own plans, so to speak, and it is Jekt who sets everything else into motion. I read this comment, yes. I think that that's probably correct. Yeah. I think that's probably right, that Jekt... So the question is, you know, how Titus has Bahamut that follows him all around. Yes. Guides him and tells him what to do. Did Jekt have someone following him around telling him what to do? And I would say the evidence for that is is none. I don't think we have any evidence for that. No. So it could be that what I interpreted as the faith are just manipulating all of this stuff. It could easily be that Jekt shows up and then the faith get the idea after Jekt becomes sin that it was Jekt's idea. And then sure. the faith are like, I see where this is going. Let's see what we can do. And then we Bahamut can capitalize on this yeah. situation, which, which does <clears throat> bother a little bit. My theory that um, Titus and Jekt were set up to hate each other, to have yes. that type of relationship right. where they basically hate each other, but they're still close. Like they love and hate each other in the most extreme possible ways. I like that theory. It may not be correct. Um, it still is in a if, sense, if though. Not, Right, because Jekt wasn't because really as bad as Titus remembers. They would have to have dreamed this relationship anyways. Whether they did it with the intention, you're right, you're right. whether they yeah. did it originally with the intention of setting up this perfect scenario where the yeah, son goes after the father or that, not, they still created that scenario and then said, oh, we can use it yeah. for it our planned. purposes of ending the dream. You're right. So was it planned ahead of time? Maybe, maybe not. Probably not. But it was still set up by them, whether they knew that they had set up this perfect situation or not. Um, maybe not. Probably not. Yeah. So let's see. He goes on. When you revisit some of the faith after getting the airship, they make reference to how long they had forgotten to move forward and to change and that it was you, the party, or Titus, who reminded them that they need to. 
So no, I don't think it was the faith themselves that started it all intentionally back um, from making Jekt. Jekt became a hero by happenstance, and this woke up the faith from their lethargy. They did start forming ideas and taking some uh, more control from then onwards, although it's mostly limited to just be, being visions Bahamut's faith gives to Tejas. Uh, it also feels like it fits FF10 quite a bit more for Jack to have been the one to disrupt a long, stale, and stagnant people rather than it being some master plan from the faith all along. I think that that's reasonable, yeah. A lot of the ideas that I have are kind of just to get people thinking about other ways to interpret the game. Well, well yeah. Primarily because I know anything about the lore because I don't. <laughs> that's, that's the purpose of a book club in the first place, right? Exactly. It's, it's people to sort of like bounce their ideas off each other and together you sort of work towards like okay this makes the most sense right yeah um let me keep going down here uh king of the sharks is talking about when titus begins to disappear and he jumps off the airship at the end and goes to the clouds and sees Braska and um, his father and like high fives him and stuff. Yeah, yeah. He says, when Titus jumps off the ship, I don't believe it's simply him remembering those three people. Why would Braska be among the first three he thinks about when his life ends? I lean towards the scene stylistically. <laughs> I lean towards the scene stylistically or smoothly transitioning into the far plane. It just looks like mm -hmm. Titus is still falling from the ship since the Pyrefly Rich far plane has the same color clouds as the one from Sin's recent fart. <laughs> uh, plus, it just makes sense that Braska, Arn, and Jekt were already chilling together in the afterlife of, or far plane, and now Titus has joined them. Uh, as Mike brought up, the Aeons burst into Pyreflies and were most likely sent to the far plane just as any other sentient being. This kind of goes along with what was asked earlier about how do the people of Dreams Anarchan die, right? Can they go to the yeah. far plane? It seems like the Aeons are going to the far plane, so something to that effect is happening. Uh, Tita saw his mother in the far plane. His mother was also a dream. I think fulfilled, unsent, deactivated faith, and their Aeons can all find their way or be sent to FF10's heaven, just as any normal dead person. I don't believe the far plane is 100% fireplight illusions with no sentient souls, as demonstrated by Jiskel's desperate sphere delivery. Um, okay. Let's see. That kind of goes over some of the same stuff we've already talked about. Oh, this was actually kind of interesting. So, Mega Man EXE 79 uh, gives a personal theory here. I know the Ultimania says that Dreams Anarchan exists out in the deep ocean. But when I played FF10, my uninfluenced interpretation after watching the credits was that the water pillar at Mount Gagazet was Dreams Anarchand. I I saw this comment as well. I did wonder that too. And who's to say that Xanarchand is necessarily even the same scale? Yeah. Right. They could be little tiny people, you know. Yeah, exactly. I, I, but um I I just I don't know, because I also read the the uh, replies to that comment. <laughs> And it seems like, I don't know, I think it's got a decent chance of being right, but at the same time, there's the convenience problem, which is that that Dreams Anarchand was just right there. It was just right, right there. Right, the I whole mean, time. not to say that's an easy place to get to, but many people have gotten there before, and no one's like 
Not exactly, not exactly a, a, a great, well, it could be in a way, a place to protect, right? Because it's like right under people's nose. People don't expect it. Like that's the best hiding yeah. place. But at the same time, it's it seems like sin protects dreams anarchy. It would make more sense that it's out away from people. I don't know. That's what that's what you would think. That's what I would think personally. Yeah. But I do think that that's an interesting thought, and this is something that someone else was asking me. Uh, I think it was Chocolate Rob was asking if we could kind of touch on is the the level of canonicity of um, material that comes after the game's released, like an Ultimania or something like that, right? Um, I know because sometimes they outsource the Ultimania to like a company that's not related to Square Enix and. Well, they give them some tips, and then it's just kind of filled out from there. Even if they don't do that, even if it is written internally, there's certainly a lot of room for even the creator to continue retconning or changing things as right. they see fit. This was definitely true of the Xenogears Ultimania, which was not called that. It was called um, Perfect, uh, what was Works. Perfect Works, yeah. uh, where he continued to try to expand the universe through like the creation of that book yeah you know and so there are like things yeah there are things that don't necessarily like align consistently between the text of the game and the material written afterwards even when it's done by like the creator themselves right yeah okay. so you know this is a, this is kind of something uh, there's not really a great answer for but certainly square has contradicted the texts of the games that they've made Ultimanias for um, with the Ultimanias and it creates like kind of new problems and sometimes the creators are or are not very um, involved in the creations or, or at least even in giving much uh, like feedback or um, what's the word I'm looking for consultation on oh, like yeah. um, how to like you know like make those things align so it's really hard to say but sometimes the ultimanias well a lot of times the ultimanias will have really interesting info that make things easier to understand or connect better and sometimes they feel inconsistent and you got to kind of pick and choose <laughs> depending on who you are you know yeah. which which you think is the case um all in all, like your personal head cannon is really all that matters in the end, as far as I'm concerned. But like, do do accept what like makes it work for you, right? And that is that's kind of a fluid process. Like, even for me, my head cannon of FF10's lore will change depending on if I hear a theory from someone here that goes like, "Oh, like that's actually kind of cool." I'll accept that into my understanding or my reading of it, right? So. It's it's a fluid thing. Do as you will with that information. Did you before I you know read another one? Um do you have any comments that you had seen that you wanted to respond to or any in particular? Um no, not necessarily. Um I okay. mean I read I read through a bunch of the comments. Um we just have really good comments. One of the things that I really wanted to mention uh, is just to encourage people throughout this whole series uh, to read the comments on each episode of these podcasts. Yes. Because they're really good. There's some really thoughtful comments and, you know, we can never get to even 1% of them, but like they're really, they're really good. And there's some just, there's some really, really um, 
you know, informed people who have some really cool and interesting ideas um, and can really, I don't know, just really open-minded types of people as well. That yeah. The comment section is great. It's really yeah. good on our videos, I've noticed. Um, yeah, after you finish the game, so you can avoid spoilers, uh, definitely go back through the videos. <laughs> go back yeah. through the videos and read the comments. That's right. Well, at this point, if you're watching this, okay, you're done, right? You would have finished by now. Here's a good one from Leander. I'd compare you, you Yevon's form to a tick, a parasite holding on to Spira. Oh, that's better than a spider. Way better. I love that. Way better. Oh, I like this good. a lot. It's like he's a parasite holding on to Spira, right? Yes, Hold that's so good. I so was thinking about that, the spider, yes. and I was like, okay, like, kind of. It does look like a tick. It looks way more it like a tick. It looks more like a tick. It looks mm. a lot more like a tick. Oh, that's beautiful. I love that. Um, this person is bringing up a question about the nucleus. Oh, yeah. Let me read it. I, I don't know if th this is a theory on this person's part, but it could expand on the questions we had. Um, <clears throat> uh, this is from Strenalis. I've had the same question on my mind regarding the nucleus of sin and where we see the Crusader's souls entering. We don't really know that the sending is the one and only way to send souls to the afterlife. That's been part of the teachings of Yemen, which we already can discount as a reliable source. Only summoners can perform it, and we know summoning was perfected by Xanarkin mages like Yu Yevon. And the same Yu Yevon who 1,000 years ago cast a spell that effectively summoned a bunch of Pyreflies to one location, crafting the unholy armor of sin. What if the sending is just a tool to guide nearby Pyreflies to one specific location? You can send them to the far plane, as is the tradition, which is nice because it seems to have some guado-made barrier that prevents them from leaving ever again. But perhaps any large enough concentration of pyreflies could be marked as a destination for other pyreflies to gather at, and perhaps it's only through a large gathering of them that it's possible for some to cross over to the actual afterlife, like an event horizon or a black hole. Right, event horizon of a black hole. I think the reason summoners are still needed to perform the sending as the common people know it is because yes, sin may be absorbing some souls to replenish what is lost, but it's like a mindless animal killing without discretion just to keep the cycle going. Summoners are still needed to follow in its wake to send what remains to a secure location like the far plane at Guadalajara. The crusaders at Mihen actually put up a decent fight and penetrated some of Sin's defenses, so in the wake of that battle, it may have been hungrier than usual and feasted on more souls than it would usually take it. I could see that. I think that makes some sense. Yeah, that's fascinating. Um, I mean, I like it. Yeah. This is from Roberto Carlos Piero Costa. One of my questions is about Sin's motivations to destroy all technology in Spira. Was it because of the fear to be overcome by science and eventually leading people to pray less to consequently nerf you, Yevon? Uh, one more thing, Seymour has an extra dialogue if you summon Anima during his last fight against you. Thus, just a thought about how Seymour could get into Sin. I guess he confronted Sin off-screen at some point after Gagazet, but or was absorbed by Sin, and once inside he used his powers to remain as an unsent and alive. So... Uh, I like that last part. If we're talking about sin taking dead souls into itself, right? Yeah, that could well, he be was how. Dead. He, he yeah. could just approach sin and just just like absorb into him. And then his will being strong enough to remain on scent inside gave him the opportunity to try to like take over it somehow. Yes. Um, the first part 
Which did, yeah, that's Sin's also- motivation to destroy all technology and spirit was because of the fear to be overcome by science and eventually leading people to pray less. I don't think I Sin's don't. motivation has anything to do with you or with Yevin. <laughs> with Yevin. Or he well, says well, you, Yevin, the whole lot. What was you, Yevin's original? Why did you, Yevin, hate the Machina so much? And it's because the Machina were going to destroy his whole freaking. Well, Bavel used. Because Xanarkin had Machina. Yes. But but Bavel's machina Bavel's machina was more advanced. Yeah, yeah. So I think Sin was created as this like machina destroying like Well it's an equalizer. Yeah. Right? So you shake up the board and let the pieces fall in different places. So it's like Bavel has better stuff than Xanarkin. Well what if we just get rid of all the machina? Now we're both on a level playing field, sure. right? Whereas at the rate things were going, Bavel was just going to swallow up Xanarkin. Yeah. Yeah, I could see that. That's um, what I think it. I like, also, I like that. Also, there's like, you know, just the general concerns of Machina eventually going to destroy the world, right? Uh, Nick Bros has a clarification here on when the Dark Aeons appear, because I had forgot exactly when that happened. Oh, yeah, when was it? The Dark Aeons appear after Bavel. And are essentially okay. an addition to the plot in a sense as hostile summoners attacking you in Yevin's name. In many cases, they are quite literally blocking your path to somewhere. I think the one probably most infamous is Dark Valifor, as it blocks you from getting Auron's final limit break if you did not get the memory sphere before Bavel, as it is probably the least realistic to have done before this point, because you have to go all the way back to be safe. Um, but there are other examples too, such as blocking Anima's acquisition if you didn't get the hidden temple treasures, or blocking an item required for Titus's ultimate weapon. I don't know how I feel about this. It is cool, but having maxed out my characters to fight penance, it's also kind of mean. Um, so, just wanted to read that real quick. Oh, he says, also, now that we're finally past Anarchand, the other thing I find ironic about the little boat journey over the ruined city is that while Yevon was shunned this city or shunned this city for its use of Machina, leading it to ruin. We're talking about I think when the shoe puff is going over the flooded oh, city. Oh, that city. Yeah, yeah. Okay, maybe. Let me make sure I'm right about that. I think that's what he's refer- referencing here. They regard Xanarkand as a holy place, despite it both being the ruins of a highly advanced civilization who used Machina. And also the fact that it was Bavel that nearly destroyed it using Machina. Pretty hypocritical, if you ask me. It's a lot of hypocriticals, uh, a lot of hypocrites in the world of spirit. Yeah. I can understand why Xanarkand is a holy place, though. And it has to do with the fact that Yu Yevon, it was the reason Yu Yevon started all of this. It's the reason why the faith are doing any of what they're doing. Right. So I think that that does rub off on the religion in general, you know? That they yeah. had some control over that in some minor way, you know, to still shape the perspective to be like, no, think whatever you want, teach whatever you want. But Xanarkand was a good place mm. and an important place. And don't don't start thinking that it's not, because the whole reason we're doing this is to keep Xanarkand pristine and perfect how it was. Uh, this one comes from Monk Funky. <laughs> the thank you line from Yuna has a little more meaning to it in my mind. I am a native Japanese speaker. Mm-hmm. The fact that I love you is culturally awkward is true. 
But I think thank you actually carries a more wide range of meanings to it when she says it to Titus. But, um, but that is the problem, though, is that it does carry such a wide range of meaning. Like, arigato can be said to... Uh, well, that's just that's just Japanese in general, right? Like, the structure of Japanese in general, it, it, you can... There's so yeah, many ways to say yes. Yes. But you would never say the I love you things to a stranger on the street, you know? Yeah. Like, part of the issue is that it is so broad. But I, I do get what he's saying, that arigato can, in certain contexts, like this one, have a very deep meaning. Did I mention, did it, Did you hear the part where I said that this person is a native Japanese speaker? Yeah, yes. Okay. Yes, yes, yes. So. I'm uh, not discounting what he said. Yeah, I'm just yeah. Saying, yeah. But that's, that is, when translating Japanese to English, that is part of the problem. Oh, sure. Yeah. Um, but arigato is, is, is like so general that it can mean so many different things. It goes on to say, thank you for his friendship. Thank you for his protection. Thank you for his love. Thank you for his sacrifice, etc. It encompasses more of their relationship than just a romantic one. Um, I, I can see that. Yeah. I, th I just think that... <coughs> well, it Sorry. encompasses more of the relationship, but, but not at all the romantic one. It's more... It, well, it, it, it can. It's more the issue that I have with it. It can, and I think it does in Japanese. I think that in English, it would be harder to pick up on the romantic subtext of that with the words thank you than it may imply in Japanese. Maybe. That's probably true. That's probably true. But even in English, the word thank you has those same connotations that sure. you listed out sure. below. You know? Yeah, that's true. Um, but I guess because the word I love you is so awkward, another word does take its place. I do, I do get that. That it's possible, and and another comment also mentioned that because I mentioned that uh, the translation team had to kind of fight for that one. Um, one of the other comments um, on that video mentions that it wasn't really much of a fight; it was just a suggestion, and the Japanese team said, "Sure, go with it. That's fine." So they just said, "Oh, we want to change thank you to I love you," and the Japanese team said, "Sweet." So it wasn't like a fight or anything. Sure. It's pretty. So that lends credence to what this commenter is saying as a native Japanese speaker that, well, that's kind of maybe what they meant yeah. when they had her say thank you. Yeah. And it wasn't such a big deal. Sure. Right. I mean, that's fair enough. Um, let's see. 12 eel deal. Excellent podcast. I'm happy I caught up during my commute. So I sincerely look forward to the final episode and your future coverage of Metal Gear Solid. Five things. Haha. <laughs> Number one, the presence of powerful fiends and the pyreflies in Sin are probably the unsent guardians, summoners, and crusaders who died fighting with it or came in contact with Sin. Uh, after Operation Meehan, we actually never see Yuna perform ascending. It's possible excommunicated crusaders no longer receive Yevon's blessing and instead are not granted sendings. Uh, remember that Luzu and Gata and the character models of crusaders are shown walking in the Tower of the Dead prior to the minigame portion or immediately after the operation, if my memory serves. This leads me to number two. Both explanations as to what the far plane is are probably true. The biggest fallacy to the Albed theory is Jiskel exiting the far plane to physically hand Yuna the sphere. Therefore, the images of people there are probably real. However, Titus's mom, Braska, who gave his life uh, in contact with Sin, and Chapu are also on the far plane. I believe these three people are memories. 
Oh, so he's saying there's a combination of the two. So the fireflies can recall who you're thinking about. And in this case, the people we're talking about, Braska, Chapu, uh, were killed by sin, so therefore should have gone into sin when they died. Um, and then Titus's mother being a dream, right, is a re recall of his memory. But they could also have real dead souls there as well, like Jiskel who came out and delivered the the memory sphere to Yuna. So he's saying both things are correct. It's not like it's a false, um, what do you call it? False dichotomy? Or equivalence? Where it's like it's either this or this? Oh, dichotomy, you're right, yeah. So um, he's saying like both okay. of them could be true. That that's a that's a way at which they both could be true. Yeah. Um, I believe these through. Okay, uh, what spirits do not actually get to the far plane are probably fabricated. Their images made more complete by the collective memories of those in and interacting with the far plane. Riku and Lulu are uh, probably both correct. Those that are still alive. Uh, why living people are not manifested by fireflies are, are known in and outside of the far plane to be as such, so they cannot be dreamed the same way we wake from our dreams when we uh, can no longer accept them. Titus's mom was not technically ever alive in Spira. Well, I think she was in the sense that she was summoned, but... Exactly, yeah. But Titus recalls her anyway, so the fireflies... But I think she did die in Dreams Anarchand, right? Like, I believe that happened, yeah. Yeah. So she went to the far plane. Titus's mom was not technically ever alive in Spira, but Titus recalls her anyway, so the Pyreflies probably reconstructed her, whether through Titus or the memories of those before the Greater War in which a person like Titus's mom existed. Okay, number three. Yu Yevon is, sort of, is sort of egg-shaped, he says. Uh, four, Riku's affinity scenes are pretty interesting. Apparently she wanted a large family and to settle down. And five, I hope you two talk more about the bavel zanarkin War predating the fall and rise of Zanarkin. This is the largest gap in my understanding of FF10. Well. <laughs> I don't think there's that much info on it. There is there is Machen at the bottom of Mount Gagazette. He does talk about it and says more or less the story of what happened. But it's in about three paragraphs, and that's about it. Yeah, let me see uh, if I can look that up. Machen bavel zanarkin War. Let's see what he says. And of course he ends it with a, well, some say that, you know, and then it's like, okay, is this true or not? Okay. The Machina War was an event that occurred 1,000 years prior to the events of FF10. It was a war that waged, waged between the city of Bavel and the city of Xanarkand. This war ended with the creation of sin, causing death and sorrow to rain down on Spear for a thousand years. Story. This is as told in Final Fantasy X 2.5. <laughs> I don't know what that is. Um, Einodaisho? Einodaisho? I don't know what that is. Uh, I don't know how much There's I should read it. Something of A, the. Um... Okay. If I don't know if you care about spoilers for Final Fantasy X-2 and later related things, maybe skip this one. But as told in Final Fantasy X-2.5, I have no idea what that is. Prior to and at the time of the war, Bavel was under the rule of a polytheistic religious authority, who for the most part had control over magic. 
The people with predisposition to wield magic were at an advantage to those who could not. One day, a tribe of workers called the Bedor invented appliances dubbed Machina that achieved things that were previously only possible with magic, turning the tide and displeasing the authorities who lost their leverage over the common folk. Instead of demonizing the Bedor and their Machina, the government elected to find a way to take advantage of them. The Bedor became increasingly odd. I would think the Bedor were the predecessors of the Albed, it seems like. So they sort of used Machina because they were not um, predisposed to be magic users, and so they used Machina to do some of the things that to magic users could do. Yeah. Um, the Bedor became increasingly auda- uh, audacious with their inventions, and the government became more and more tyrannical. Not only the Bevel government, but most city-states and their own Bedor workshops developing Machina, giving rise to the Machina cities. The Bedor didn't have the option of refusing to build further Machina, or else they would be executed. So they would be executed if they refused to build more? So it's like the government stepped in and sort of like forced them to keep advancing their Machina. Um, The summoner at the head of Bevel declared the mage of Xanarkand, his daughter and his followers as heretics. This is Yevon and Unaleska, right? Unaleska. Uh, Bevel thus attacked, sparking the war, but hadn't excommunicated the heretics, counting on their charisma to win the war and wanting to use them until the very end. Bevel hoped that, this way, Xanarkand would give up on using Machina weapons against them. The worst fear of Xanarkand wasn't the Machina wielded by Bevel, but the summoners, and they sent assassins to uh, the base where they were gathered, aiming to exterminate them using bombs that resembled blitzballs. The leader of the Bedor, Alb, okay, so this is where the Al, so I was right, this is where the Albed came from. The leader of Bedor, his name was Alb, had a mechanical foot soldier project he called Fake Bedor that he wanted to substitute human infantry with. This, the development wasn't going as quickly as needed, and Alb and his cowardice sought to fool his own allies and used real human Bedor fighters covered in yellow suits as, uh, and gas masks. They wielded long wire-like whips and were weak, lacking any battle prowess due to uh, no prior training. The first model shown at Velm was scared and spilled blood when struck by a sword. During the battle with the assassins from Xanarkand, Velm realized no such thing as fake Bador existed, uh, and they were human units. Bavel's technological prowess culminated in a weapon dubbed Vagnagun. I remember that term. I think that's from 10-2. Which was stored away underneath the city because it was deemed unable to distinguish friend from foe. A warrior from Xanarkand, Shuyin, infiltrated its lair and tried to operate the Machina, but was stopped by his lover, the summoner Len, um, before both were gunned down by Bavel forces. Bavel had the upper hand over Xanarkand. Knowing this, the ruler of Xanarkand, Yu Yevon, had his remaining summoners and the townspeople who survived the war become faith, with the exception of his daughter Unaleska and her husband Zeon, to summon a memory of his beloved city. Using the pyreflies of the dead soldiers, he created sin. Okay, so there you go. Dead soldiers, he used the pyreflies from the dead to create sin, so that lends more credence to the fact that sin takes the pyreflies from dead people that it kills, right? Um, Which destroyed the real Xanarkand. As the Bavel forces reached Mount Gagazet, they witnessed the ruins that had been Xanarkand, the multitude of faith that were atop the mountain singing the hymn of the faith, 
and sin looming over the horizon. By the, by the time word reached Bavel, a ceasefire was called and the war ended. So there you go. That's what we know about the war, even beyond whatever Machen would have said in Final Fantasy X. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Um, okay, this is from Joshua Johnson. Really great podcast. Uh, always a joy to listen to the analysis of the of classics like FF10. Regarding the sending of Seymour and Ginnam, I always interpreted the sending as working best on a recently deceased, but after a point it becomes less effective. Hence why summoners can't just send any fiend. Basically there isn't much humanity left to send. So it takes a while for a fiend who is resisting going to the far plane to reach a point in which sending no longer works. Hmm. Then you just got to kill him, I guess. Yeah, that um, makes sense. That, actually, that kind of does make sense to me because there has to be some humanity there to have a will to resist death, right? But as you lose that humanity, become more animalistic, then when you kill them, they, can't, they don't have the same human will of resisting death kind of thing. So they just hmm. pass over, I guess. Interesting. Um, in Seymour's case, he gradually gets more and more monstrous in form. Ginnam was basically a husk of resentment on autopilot, lacking much humanity. This seems to line up too with your idea of weakening the fiend enough to send them, as that is sort of what we do all game, kill fiends until their fireflies disperse. This may also help distinguish between unsent like Auron, who aren't hostile or actively resisting. Uh, just a theory. Yeah, I think it makes sense. Let's see if we can do maybe like one. No, let's just do one more. Okay. And we got to move on because we got to do another <laughs> Patreon exclusive podcast here. Yep. Uh, okay, this one just stuck out to me because the first thing I saw was just a bit surprised you didn't talk about. So let's see what this is about. Picker of Nits. <laughs> That's that the name be. of this person, Picker of Nits. Just a bit surprised you didn't talk a bit more about the fight with Sin. Mentioned it before, but for my money, Sin is one of the most powerful Final Fantasy antagonists, just uh, short of the top, actually. And they do a good job of demonstrating its raw power in story and gameplay. The party is only able to engage Sin directly by exploiting a very specific psychological weakness that might not actually work under different circumstances, and magnified on a global scale, utilizing a military-grade airship outfitted heavily, uh, outfitted with heavy artillery to level the playing field. And even then, Sin still possesses planet-shaking power and must be entered to be dismantled from within. And while plenty of JRPG villains have seemingly planet-busting ultimate attacks, Supernova or Ragnarok, for example, you are generally able to survive them, m multiple times even, and the world is no worse for wear after the battle. Sin's Giga Graviton, by contrast, is rather unique in that there is simply no way to survive it. The game doesn't even bother displaying damage numbers. It's just an automatic game over. Good, good point there. Anyway, good job on making it through, though. I was wondering if you guys would have gone over the optional content. I would have had I not been on the road for two weeks. Yeah. <laughs> um that's just kind of the way things shook out with my full-time job, and so I just didn't have time to do it. Um, otherwise, I would have. So, uh, unfortunately, that's just the way things happen. I'm going to read uh, one more. Well, there was one more in relation to Sin and his uh, gravity powers. Oh, yes. Powers. Yes. 
um, I can't remember who made the comment, but the the general idea that it makes perfect sense that sin would use gravity magic because yes. everything revolves around sin. Yes, yes, yes. Right. right. As if it has a pole like like the spiral gravity going into the center. Exactly, just like a spiral. Yeah. It's like sin is at the center of that, you know. Yep. And it's sucking everything into it. So the gravity thing is is perfect. Sin has gravity in the world of Spira, so to speak. Yeah. Yep. It, 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 like everything centers around it or revolves around it. I'm going to read this last one from Meeks because this was about the symbol that you see from space when Sin oh, does the that eight thing. fire lines? Yeah, yeah, let's hear it. So Meeks says, the symbol the eight lines make around the cyclone might be a reference to the chaos sigil, just more visual symbolism for Sin being the epicenter of everything. Sin so easily losing its left arm all of a sudden might be a visual representation of Unaleska's death as part of the whole Sin system. That said, it still makes very little sense from an actual story perspective. So I like that, though. The eight lines uh, around the cyclone might be reference to the chaos sigil, just more visual yeah. symbolism for sin being the epicenter of everything. Well, I just looked up the chaos sigil, and it is eight lines around a circle. Um, yeah. Could be sure. it. Sure. I mean, could that very well could be it. But eight, eight has a lot of meanings. Um, it doesn't necessarily have to be that. And the number eight, just like I mentioned with the lotus flower means uh transformation or mediation it can it can mean those things as well as well as like a restoration or a rebirth so um but yeah i've never seen the chaos sigil before that was pretty cool yeah so great stuff i think we're gonna leave off there there are a lot more comments and i really wish we could get to them all we will would never have the time to do that though um yeah but great discussion this clears up a few things for me i feel like i've reached a a good head canon conclusion to a lot of my questions. That's hey, and, what's important. We're, we're not getting to the perfect place because there is still a whole nother game here. And if there's additional stuff where it's like, oh, you know, we're missing this or that, it's like, mm. well, we, at some point, we will play 10 2. Yeah, we will. And we can get into it then because, um, and, you know, that'll, that'll be a perfect way to kind of get in and round out a lot of the, uh, you know, more like world points that are missing that we right. haven't quite analyzed here in, in just the first one. There definitely will be a Final Fantasy X-2 podcast series that we'll do in the future at some point. At um, some point. But if people are interested in my raw reaction on a first playthrough of Final Fantasy X-2, that playlist is here on the channel. If you go yeah. to our channel of playlists, there should be a Final Fantasy X-2 live-streamed playthrough that I did. Um for my very first playthrough of that game a few years back. So I, I think I did that for Final Fantasy Fridays for a while. So um, you can go watch that and get my, uh, you know, just blind reaction to that game's wildness <laughs> if you want. Uh, otherwise, it may be a while before we cover it, but we will do it at some point. Anything else you want to say before we sign off here? I don't. I'm excited for Metal Gear. So. Me too. Me too. It's Bring been it a on. long time since I played it. Once again, a lot of psychoanalysis, a lot of Carl Jung, mm -hmm. a lot of the stuff that we've been talking about for over a year now. I'm excited to get into it. There's a commonality between all these classic Japanese games we loved growing up, and we just yeah. didn't know it was Carl Jung at the time. We didn't know. <laughs> yeah, anything in the late 90s, for whatever reason, especially in Japan, it was just like Carl Jung, man. All right, everybody, thank you for watching. Um, we will see you again soon with uh, Metal Gear. Peace out.